Ta-da. Okay. Hi. <laughs> hey, Jenny. It's great Hi, to talk Jenny. to you again and have the, have the tables turned. Yes, I know. This is the first time I've done this. And so, as I was saying before, I'm like, who knows what my editing skills will be like, but um, giving it a try because Substack is kind of um, letting its, its writers experiment with new formats. So I've been wanting to talk to you because I, I've been, as a, as a new baby vegan, I have been, you know, very interested in kind of sentient, like it keeps, sentientism keeps popping back into my head basically. And I keep thinking about yeah. it. So I was like, this will be great. I'll uh, talk to him and ask all my questions, but let me introduce you. Okay. So this is Jamie Woodhouse. You, and I feel like I'm already going to screw this up, but you are dedicated to kind of expanding the movement that is sentientism. Um, okay. And so explain a little bit about what that is, like what, what sentientism or what you added to sort of like the idea of what sentient is. Yeah. So, so sentientism, it's a, it's a worldview, if you like, a way of thinking about the world or a philosophy. And it's trying to answer the two deepest philosophical questions. How should we understand reality? You know, what's real? What exists? What should we believe on one side? But also what matters ethically and who gets to matter ethically? So it's trying to answer both of those two um, different questions. So in a sentence, I'd summarize it as evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. So it's a combination of what you might think of as a, a naturalistic or a methodologically naturalistic way of understanding the world where we use evidence and reason, a scientific worldview, um, plus any other type of evidence to try and probabilistically and provisionally understand the world rather than using a supernatural or a revealed or a fideistic sort of faith-based approach to belief. So that's one part. And the other part, the ethics, the clue is in the name, that we should grant moral consideration, we should have compassion for, we should care about in some sense, every being that is sentient. And the shorthand for that is have, have any being that has the capacity to experience things, primarily suffering or flourishing, you know, good or bad things. And did you study philosophy in school? Like, I feel like um, I'm surprised by how many vegans I know, not just, I mean, you obviously, you know, are, are obviously know a lot about sort of like this like you know philosophical way of thinking and kind of the academic part of it in a way but um I'll feel like I'll just you know meet, meet a vegan on the street and they're like suddenly able to just you know kind of like almost uh break out like uh a thesis paper basically from their heads on ph philosophy and I'm sort of like how, where did you pick that up so was this part of your education or it wasn't, but I think there's something weird about us vegans is that when you're swimming against the mainstream, you're almost forced into being ready to justify and argue and, and demonstrate where you're, if you're swimming comfortably with the mainstream, you don't really have to think about justifications because they're just all around you. Whereas I think sometimes, uh, you know, if you want to push back and you want to challenge those social norms, you've got to have a strong story. And if you're, particularly if you're a vegan on Twitter, you get used to that pretty quickly. So, but, but I didn't, so I didn't really have a background in that um, field at all. You know, I, um, this is almost a bit of a second life for me. I, I still am a you know, consultant and independently helping individuals and organizations on an ad hoc basis. But I had a corporate career for about a quarter of a century where I was working with a very large um, you know, global consulting firm as a, as a partner in that. So I had a you know, business degree, worked in the corporate world, and these interests have fascinated me since I was a child, but they were always squeezed around the edges, you know, very amateurish. You know, dipping into reading here and there and uh so yeah the, the short answer is no I don't really have a background in this stuff and I'm still very much an amateur you know I'm, I have the luxury of being able to dip into all sorts of different disciplines and through the YouTube and the podcast talk to some amazing people who actually have expertise but yeah I, I remain an enthusiastic amateur you don't seem like an amateur to me but I think that's because well I don't know I, have, I think maybe I said this when we talked on your podcast I can't remember but like there are the sort of academic part of philosophy. If it feels like an academic paper to me, I almost have like a sort of PTSD reaction for like, oh my God, I'm back in college. Like, I don't want to yeah. go down this road. Um, I'm kind of getting over it now. Um, you know, it's like, no, no one's going to grade you, Jenny. So you're, you're, you're yeah. okay. But, but you're safe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so, but in terms of being a vegan, well, obviously I'm guessing you were not <laughs> born a vegan, but when did you become um uh, vegan 
When did you sort uh, of take that dietary shift? That was probably about five years ago now. Oh, um, okay. So it's quite it's quite recent. I was vegetarian for maybe twenty something years before that. So I was in a vegetarian holding pan for a long, long time. Um, but then vegan for about five years now. Yeah, and it was okay. around that it was around that time of going vegan that I started getting interested in the philosophical angle and started working on the sentientism idea because it was really that uh, clarity that pushed me from vegetarianism to veganism and that drive for something that was more consistent and more driven by ethics rather than a sort of vague sense of what was right and wrong to do. So we were talking about this sort of secular humanism part before, but it's, I guess when I think about it, I, I mean, I do know a lot of vegans will talk sort of about like, like I said, philosophy, ethics, that kind of thing. I do know some secular humanists who never talk about, I mean, I've never heard them once. I don't, to my knowledge, they're not vegan and they've never mentioned like animal rights or animal lives or anything like that. So I, I, and there is actually, I, I don't think there's like, well, anyway, there's a, there's a secular humanist like gathering place. I don't know sure what you would call the, the building, but it, in DC. So yeah. like there are, there, you know, it's, it's, I do meet some of them <laughs> on occasion here. And um, yeah, like I, I'm not aware that any of them are vegan at all. Is it, so is that common? Do you think, is it, is it different in the UK at all? Same? I'd, I'd love to see some more research done about yes. it. And, and <laughs> not many people in the academic world have looked into either. So there's um, yeah. Dr. Corey Lee Wren had done some great work in this. Um, uh, Kim Socher. So there's a, you know, for a few other people who have looked at that intersection, if you like, of okay. you know, people who have a naturalistic worldview, which might well lead you into atheism or agnosticism or secular humanism, and this uh, broader compassion for for animals. So it's a fascinating intersection, and and that was partly my path into it. And my anecdotal sense is that there's a stronger correlation one way than there is the other. So people who are you know vegan or seriously committed to non-human animal ethics seem to be strongly more likely to be naturalistic in their outlook um, than not. Um, and in part, I think that is because sometimes there is a cluster of um, things that have led them to reject default social norms. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's personal ethics stuff. It might be homophobia, it might be sexism, it might be you know, other ethical systems. It might be kicking back against a religious upbringing. And that predilection seems to correlate with the ability to, you know, see the harmful social norms that sit around our, the way we look at animals and, you know, a confidence and an ability to kick back. So it's quite often a cluster around, right, I've rejected that harmful social norm and that one and that one and that one. And that leads quite a few of them into a place where they're, you know, naturalistically grounded. They've rejected a religious supernatural worldview but they're also very deeply serious about non-human animal ethics as well. So there is, there seems to be quite a strong correlation there. I think if you, if you look at, you know, animal advocates and vegans, you'll find a higher proportion of atheists and agnostics than you would in the baseline population. But it does seem that it, it and again, it, this varies massively depending where you go around the world, because there are different religious and cultural backgrounds around our ethics to animals. But in a, I think in a generically Western context, there is a correlation the other way too, in that, um, I went to a, a Darwin Day lecture on by Humanist UK in 2018, and one of my other guests, Diana Fleischman, spoke at that. Um, and I was rather cheekily asked a question of the audience instead of, of Diana as the speaker. And I said, look, for this audience of maybe 1,100 humanists, how many of you are ethical vegans or vegetarians? And about 40% of the people of the people put their hands up. So again, I would suggest anecdotally that, again, compared against a base like base rate which is very low in terms of veganism at the moment humanists were already at a higher level than than the average um but at the same time there is something in the culture of secular humanism and maybe the clue is in the name that is very centered on humans you know there's this um anthropocentrism uh still at its heart so yeah i find that and i find that particularly frustrating because you know, I can understand from having talked to thousands of people over my life about non-human animal ethics that people have different perspectives, they have different priorities, they have, you know, different um, ability to have the luxury that I have of thinking about these things and, and working it through. They have pressures on their lives, they have different access to, you know, food and consumption choices, all of that. So I can be quite forgiving in that sense. Um, but if someone is 
a committed, you know, secular humanist who is deliberately focused on evidence, reason, and a universal compassion for all humans, and by definition is keen to uh, spot harmful social norms, for example, in the religious world, and is willing to break from those social norms to find a more compassionate ethic. I find it even more frustrating when people who are committed humanists really kick back against the non-human animal ethics agenda because I sort of expect a little bit more from them. But uh... Well, that's interesting. I mean, that kind of brings me to what I kind of wanted to talk to you about because it's it's been interesting for me to sort of, because I think um, in many ways, I'm still very, you know, practical about meat eating, especially like mostly covering climate. I kind yeah. of, you know, and I have to push back against this in myself that I'm often like, we're just not going to get everyone to stop eating me. This is not going to happen. So like, what's sort of the best we can kind of hope for here. Yeah. Um, but I also noticed in myself where I'm kind of, I am comfortable kind of, you know, you know, stepping out of it's I don't know if it's stepping out of my journalism voice or not but whatever telling people like no you have to you know make these changes basically for yeah. climate change but when it comes to kind of talking about you know animal lives basically basically talking about animals as sentient beings and not even just animals like insects and you know any other creatures I really feel uncomfortable with it and I kind of just and I, and I think part of it is in my own life, I see the resistance from people like, you know, people look like, oh, you got like vegans don't eat honey. Why? And it's sort of like, okay, forget the honey. Like, we're just like, let's not even get into that today. I just want you to eat less meat. Yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of like too much for them to take on. And like the conversation feels like it's going to be too difficult. So I don't know. It's interesting. And I guess just, but I, there's that part of it. And then I think just the idea of maybe challenging kind of, you know, an action that people take every day and like yeah. put characterizing that as, you know, murder basically is kind of like uncomfortable. Like I don't normally go about accusing people of murder. So yeah. the idea of kind of getting into that conversation feels like, oh God, it's, it's too icky. It's too, it's, it's it, like, I, I kind of try to shy away from it wherever possible. And so I'm, curious if you've ever felt that way why you think it's such a difficult conversation are you just kind of used to it now like <laughs> yeah getting there it's strange I think I think there's a generic thing that um it almost feels slightly embarrassing to have yeah. an ethical stance about anything in a way you know there's all always a sense of you know you have an opinion you're about to preach you know, are you getting on a high horse, whatever the topic is. So I think this, you know, that that affects people who are trying to drive, you know, human social change as well, right? There's this sense of, you know, are you starting to hector me? Do you think you're better than me? You know, and and, and we react against that with a sense of embarrassment and hesitation generally. Um, but I think it, it goes to a whole new level when we're talking about non-human animals, um, partly because, you know, in most of the societies that you and I operate and there's at least a tacit acceptance that you know we should have universal human compassion so that makes it much easier for us to talk about issues in human social justice because there is a background assumption that all humans matter so surely we have that in common and then we can go and work on racism and homophobia and transphobia and you know whatever it is right because all humans matter so we've got a, a more solid grounding and a starting point and i think the non-human animal space is a difficult one because you're going across that species boundary and people see that as much more powerful and important and philosophically relevant than I do because I think I focus on sentience um but, but that is a challenge but I think the second challenge you mentioned as well is um particularly around food but also other forms of animal exploitation it's so deeply embedded in the fabric of people's lives um it's something they're personally engaged in. They, you know, have these things on their plates. They're taking these decisions. They're, they're patterns of cultural affinity that are so deeply bound up with it. That's another source of hesitation for us is, you know, it feels daunting to sort of want to challenge that because other people are so implicitly confident that what they're doing must be fine because that's what they've always done and they do it every day, three times a day or whatever it is. So I think that's an additional source of hesitation that makes it feel awkward. 
And I think there's a there's a third source of hesitation, which is is about the effectiveness of advocacy, which again you touched on, where where you have this sense of look, I can see that this is a clear, egregious, and awful, sickening ethical wrong. But if I lay that out there, <laughs> um, as I do when I get snarky on Twitter or when I, you know, have the occasional rant, you, you do have a sense that is that the most effective way of bringing people along, finding common ground, persuading people, rather than forcing them into a position where they immediately want to defend themselves, want to separate from me, don't want to go on the freeing, wonderful journey we've gone on in terms of improving our ethics and cognitive dissonance, but see it as a, a sacrifice or a negative thing or a clan they don't want to join. So there's loads of different reasons why I think, you know, maybe you and I feel that, feel that hesitation. Yeah, it's, and, and when I think about these conversations, it's funny, it, it's also often our at meals actually, where other people are eating meat. So it's not only that I'm challenging their behavior, like it's not theoretical, it's right there in front of both of us. So it's like doubly awkward. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. And it's It's really hard, yeah. And it's also difficult when you've gone through, and I have as well, gone through this at a different pace from the people around you. So whether it's family, friends, society at large, if you're the outlier, that again that makes it difficult partly because they knew you before you changed right and you, you know you're the one who's changed right you're different so you know where did yeah. this new person come from with their opinions and their ethics and their judgment of what we all used to do together um whereas yeah. when a group moves together it's you know it's so much easier yeah and I try to you know be I mean of course, I have to be honest about that because it's like, not, I mean, I've not even been a vegan for a year. So it'd be weird if I were like, I've been doing this forever. Yeah. But And congratulations, um, by the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, I, that, it's funny that you say, right, like that other people see it as this huge challenge. I was having this conversation with my um, 10-year-old who said, like, what's the most difficult part of being vegan? And I said, well, actually, it's still cooking for all of you. And he was like, really <laughs> like it completely blew his mind which was kind of adorable because it was like wow you're like making sacrifices for us and it's like yeah like it's hard and and it is a weird thing that I didn't have sort of a I didn't you know I mean I've been cooking for a very long time and co- cooking meat and you know like whole meat, like breaking down carcasses and all that stuff so and that never bothered me and now you know, just over time, like, I don't, like, I, I, my brain now goes, oh, no, 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 like, I don't want to see it any, it's like, I mean, I will be around people eating meat, so it's not like I can't be in the same room, but I definitely am not wanting to, like, really get in there with, you know, the, the, the bones and all that stuff, um, which is just interesting to me that my mind kind of did that, you know, without, like, doing all this reading or anything necessarily, I mean, I guess, obviously covering the meat industry. It's not like I, that that's obviously yeah. part of it. Um, so I, I, and especially, you know, covering how meat is processed a lot, like, and, you know, how a plant-based industry would be different just on the basis of it, not breaking down those bodies. So maybe that seeped in <laughs> at some level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe my brain started putting it all together when I went vegan. I don't know. I'm, I'm, always curious of what's going on in my subconscious. And I wonder if there's a different um, factor that plays in as well. And I think you can see quite a lot of diversity, even animal advocates and vegans and and people who work in different parts of these uh, various movements, because it seems to me that there's a, there's a sort of generic sense that, you know, needlessly causing animal suffering is, is a bad thing in yeah. the generic terms, right? And, and people will also talk about the environmental and climate impacts and so on. Um, but in that generic sense, um, that does lead people to change their behavior and to do things differently, but it doesn't necessarily drive the level of ethical clarity and discomfort that you feel if you go to the next stage of, which I think is fundamental and the deepest shift, which is not just thinking, you know, I as a human um, deign to recognize that non-human animal suffering is a bad thing as an act of sort of generosity that I'm extending, but actually starting to identify with the victims themselves. And, 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 and for me, that's even 
that even though you know they're nameless and the harms are done to them are distant and it's you know largely anonymous for me that feels like another level of shift that can again drive discomfort um but also drive a level of clarity around the imperatives about you know what we should do and what we shouldn't do so i don't know if that that's an aspect of it as well because i think if you have this generic sense that it's bad for the environment animal suffering is bad um that may that maybe makes it easier for you to still navigate in a world that thinks those things are okay whereas once you've done the identification with the victim i think as as we do in human ethics hopefully there's a sharpness to the ethical perspective that i think is is, is a positive in it important thing to do but it does drive another level of discomfort that's um, interesting i have thoughts on that but i will say but but like it does seem that there's often um in the sort of food advocacy world people sort of t- i don't know maybe it's not two paths exactly but a lot of people don't become vegans instead they they sort of go for a um, kind of high animal welfare, yeah. small farm um, method of production. Like that's what they would think is the ideal. Um, and I do know a lot of very dedicated small farmers. Now there's, that's a whole complicated topic because not every small farmer is so dedicated and, and et cetera, et cetera. But I do know people who are very dedicated and absolutely, you know, don't, they, they, they believe eat, eating meat is perfectly ethical, yeah. but they believe that sort of the right way to do it is to sort of ethically, you know, well, ethically to humanely, I think is the term used slaughter, yeah. meat, you know, yeah. as humanely as possible. The yeah. interesting thing is I actually always had kind of, a, I've always had kind of a weird feeling about that in the sense that when you start looking at sort of animal welfare studies, some of it does just feel it's interesting science, but it feels a bit like, I mean, they're all going to die in 18 months. So what are we doing here? Like uh, on the one hand, you can clearly see that there are ways to sort of reduce suffering. Um, and so I don't want to like diminish that work, but sometimes it does feel like a strange bargaining. Like that's even mm-hmm. before I was vegan, always felt like this is a bit of a, a strange bargain we're making given that like, especially with say chickens or whatever, like how great is your life? <laughs> is there, are there lives? If, you know, six months later, they're going to be slaughtered anyway. There's, you know, I, it, it's just, it's not um, intellectually, it's not clear to me. It's not sort of yeah. like, ah, well, we know, um, you know, that putting them here, they'll be perfectly happy. They won't, like, we, we don't have a clear sort of science like that. We can do the best we can, but it is this, this like odd bargain that doesn't, fully add up, you know, so. Yeah, and I think that links to that shift I was talking about, because I think if you do have this sort of generic sense that, you know, yes, wouldn't it be nice to reduce animal suffering because who thinks that torturing a pet is a good idea, right? right? So everyone's against needlessly causing animals to suffer, of course, right? But if you just feel that in a generic sense, without necessarily an identification with the victims, that does make it easier for you to go down that path of, you know, humane, small scale, compassionate farming, caring yeah. for their caring for their animals and so on and um and obviously that's a path that um you know has been well trodden and there's billions of beautifully crafted happy cow marketing that encourage us to consider that path because it's nice and reassuring you know we can still have what we want but we can feel a bit better about it in ourselves so that's that's quite an easy place to get to if you feel this sort of generic compassion for sentient beings but i think when you do s- switch switch that switch and start identifying with the individual victims and always imperfectly trying to imagine what it's actually like to be a being even on the nicest free range farm. Again, the picture radically shifts. Um, And I think when you do take the naturalistic scientific based approach and instead of saying just accepting, you know, we do humane slaughter and you just look at the facts of the matter in very simple, unemotional terms. And you look at, you know, what is the definition of the word humane, right? It's, it's about compassion and kindness. And then you look at the methods that are used, even in the least bad animal farms, uh, not just at slaughter, but also, um, you know, the separation of 
male chicks and the maceration after birth, the separation of male calves from their mothers, and normally they're shot shortly afterwards or used for veal, um, the uh, electrostimulation of bulls to extract semen, the artificial insemination of cows for permanent pregnancies, which in you know, human terms is sexual abuse, um, and then the slaughtering techniques, which always happen at the point when the animal is either at peak yield or ceases to be productive at a very young age, those slaughtering techniques, again, when you think about what the word humane means, and you think about what the techniques actually are, um, you know, anyone who's been electrocuted or gassed or in a smacked with blunt force trauma or, you know, again, the scales tend to fall away. And so again, I think those two things tend to come together when you do what we do in human ethics and identify with the experience of the victim and their family, all of a sudden, quite a lot of these things, you know, you, you get, for me, I've got to a different level of clarity. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't, that doesn't mean um, you don't need to moderate the way you advocate and how you talk about these things and how you try and persuade people. And maybe there are incremental paths towards the goal. Um, but yeah, I do feel like there's a different level of clarity that comes through that perspective. Well, I guess then the, it's interesting like, the way I like that unpacking of humane. That is that is interesting because I think I guess that the heart of it is like, what do we consider these different animals and insects? Like, are they are they equal to us or yeah. are they not? And I think, I mean, I don't even know if it's equal, but it's like, are they the same as us? And so I think, like, it it is it's it's weird and fuzzy to me because it's there's only so much you can know and it's also I mean it's interesting to I think I think maybe Garrett Broad had a like a uh, Vox piece about sort of like the you know why we look at pets a certain way but I, I think um and not the meat we eat but you know I can look at a cow and a cow almost looks like a pet or even like a baby pig so yeah. in a weird way I sort of yeah, I have this instinct to want to to like want to relate to them. Um, and I've been to farm beef farms when I was, you know, in reporting, and immediately like they're the coolest creatures. So you feel it right away. You're like, these are these huge creatures. They're you get a sense of their of their beings. Um, but then chickens, no, <laughs> like yeah, chickens are the harder. weirdest things ever. I mean, it's like birds in general. We're just I'm just sort of like I don't. I don't know. I'm like, what's going on in their minds? Why are, do they want to, they want to crowd in together sometimes they want to protect themselves. Um, like there is no sort of uh, naturally existing chicken that I can imagine. Although there is supposedly forest chickens. So maybe I need to read more about those. What do they do when they're like not part of a farm? How do they hang out? Cause I'm, I, I think that's the part of it. I mean, I don't know, it's the part of it for me because other people clearly will make all these little jokes about bacon and pigs and when pigs are like so smart. So it's not clearly a thing happening for everyone. Yeah. But I do, or like with, you know, I think I asked maybe you on Twitter maybe about oysters because I'm sort of like, if I could just get this one exception, that would be amazing. Um, yeah. yeah, like something like, and insects, like reading about kind of the, you know, what evidence we have about the, the, about the awareness of insects and, and all that stuff is fascinating to me because it's sort of like, it's, it's hard to know, you know, because we're going to never have, it's not a perfect science experiment you can conduct in a lab. It's kind of like all this observational stuff. And so we're kind of just trying to inference. Yes. Now I'm not saying, okay, if chickens are unlike us, that means let's just kill them. I guess, it, but I guess I'm saying in terms of people making that step to then identify with the victim as you say yeah I think that is um even, well at least for me that is kind of like a, a breaking point where I'm like well I don't identify with a chicken yeah. um but I can tell myself all these like I I like to go back to and maybe and you do too I guess the facts but my facts are sort of like well chicken pollution the you know the the what work I mean chicken processing is gross and horrible work and so like all that stuff um you know leads me to go like oh who cares what's going on in their heads but um but I don't know it's an interesting I guess just like full you know philosophical spiral basically of like I I trying to understand how we place some of these different creatures like yeah 
And I think part of it, I guess, for me, now that I'm talking about it, is like, I guess just being new to veganism, I'm sort of like rethinking all these things. So I'm like, you know, what is a chicken? Why do we have chickens? You know, um, if we all became vegan overnight, which is not going to happen, but if we were like, what would happen to chickens? Um, you know, what would be like the ideal future for a chicken? You know, it's just sort of like an interesting thought exercise, I guess, for me yeah. that, um, and, and maybe because I like answers, I just kind of keep, and I don't have them really, I don't have perfect answers here. I'm kind of like, keep going back to it. of like trying to figure out the inner life of a chicken and a bee and an oyster and all these things. Like, I don't know. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure we, we will get a perfect answer. Like, yeah. I guess like, like any field of science, that's probably a, you know, it's a nice aspiration, but we're not going to get there. But I think, um, and I, you know, another example we could add that I think is really important is, is fish. Or again, you know, like you yeah, say, you exactly. can look into the eyes of a pig or a cow, instantly identify, you know, with fish, it may be a bit more of a stretch. And um, I think w- one of the things that really does help, even in, I think, chickens or birds or vertebrates and fish to some extent, is, is again, another extension of a human concept of contact theory. So one of the, you know, ideas in um, how to improve human ethics is, you know, just getting to know the other, you know, people become less racist when they experience people of other races, for example. And I think, you know, that same sort of thing can apply across species as well. So whether it's, you know, spending time at an animal sanctuary or, um, you know, even having a companion animal or, you know, what, what happened to the guy on my octopus teacher, for example, when you spend enough quality right. time, and the same is true with fish, right? If you, um, Jonathan Balcom's book is absolutely amazing. It's, I'd highly recommend it. When you spend enough quality time, it, you do get a, just a richer intuitive sense of what their lives might be like. But I think it's a, it's a clear pushback where people will say, look, non-humans clearly aren't exactly the same as humans. And I think, well, okay, that's, that's fine, right? That's absolutely a scientific fact. Of course we are different, but that doesn't give us an immediate excuse to completely exclude them from any moral consideration whatsoever. And I think there's probably a couple of different aspects that relate. One is, you know, our own understanding of each other's sentience is imperfect as well. You know, I'll, I'll give you a pretty high 99% somewhere probability that you're sentient because you know, um, the way we communicate, your behavior, the fact you're another human being, we have a rich common evolutionary past, that probably means our architecture is pretty similar. Put you and me in an fMRI scanner, we'd see some very similar things as we were reporting experiences. So that can give me a really high degree of confidence that you're sentient. But I think we can use those same lines of evidence for non-humans as well. Um, and um, the other thing I think is important is that doesn't mean we're leveling everything off and saying the life of a chicken is like the life of a human child, for example. Right. But I think if you think some, through something like maybe Maslow's hierarchy of needs or interests, or you think about the varieties of different human experiences, there are some which I think, if you just look at an evolutionary timescale, evolved quite late. You know, so our, you know the, the degree to which we can uh, acquire knowledge, um, advance planning for the future, um, you know, our development of existential angst, you know, all sorts of other things maybe that I think quite, came quite late in the human evolution. Um, so you might viably say maybe, um, you know, chickens or fish or cows or pigs might have a dulled down version of those things or maybe not have them at all. You know, it's difficult to tell. Um, but I think as you go closer to the base of the hierarchy, to the things that humans actually think are the most fundamental and the most important, you know, the, the survival, the sustenance needs, freedom from harm, freedom from suffering, wanting to be with our families, wanting to continue living, um, needing shelter, food and water. Those things have ancient evolutionary roots going back tens, hundreds of millions of years. And I think that can give us, again, scientific confidence that those most fundamental needs are also pretty richly shared across the non-human animal kingdom. So, you know, I'm not going to tell you that I think a chicken has a sense of existential angst or is worried what's going to happen in nine months' time, necessarily, but I'm absolutely sure they don't like physical pain. And I'm absolutely sure they do feel some sort of compassion and affinity for their family group. Um, and again, if we spent enough time with them, you can see and observe that and develop a good level of inference. So I think we don't need to claim that non-human animals are the same as humans. Um, we don't need to claim they're as valuable. You know, some, some people 
some sentientists will insist on that and say, look, we need a much more egalitarian approach that says, you know, any sentient being matters the same as any other sentient being. And many others, including me, would say, well, okay, I can see that there's such a variety of different types of sentient experiences across all the different species and within them that it may make sense to grade moral consideration. You know, for the classic thought experiment, if I could only save a chicken or a child from a burning house, you know, it's pretty obvious which one I'm going to go for emotionally and, and rationally. So, but I think the important thing is, I think you can grade sentience in different ways if you want to. You can even grade degrees of moral value in various ways if you want to. You know, sentientism in some way is neutral to that and leaves the question open. But it does insist that for any sentient being, you at least grant meaningful moral consideration to it, such that you would see needlessly causing it harm or death is, is a moral negative. So, so we don't need equality to still drive a pretty clear conclusion about moral inclusion or exclusion. Because once you're excluded morally, you know, anything goes. You could be tortured or killed with complete impunity. Your, your experience is, is irrelevant by definition. But once you're included, that has to mean at least that, you know, we would see hurting or killing you as, as a moral negative. Um, so that's, sorry, that was a bit of a long lecture, but there's, there's also something interesting about the fuzzy edges to, to sentience as well, like you say, the simplest invertebrates, and, and that's one of the interesting differences, if you like, between veganism and sentientism. One is that sentientism insists on a naturalistic worldview, whereas veganism doesn't necessarily. You know, people have all sorts of different epistemologies in veganism, whereas sentientism says we should have a naturalistic one. But the other difference is that the, most of the definitions of veganism focus on the term animal. Right. Um, whereas sentientism focuses on the characteristic of sentience. And there's a really strong overlap, of course, particularly for you know, all of the animals we farm and fish pretty much. But around the edges, there are, you know, for example, a sea sponge is classed taxonomically as an animal, but it has no nervous system at all. So I'm pretty confident it's not sentient. We don't need to grant it moral consideration. It can't experience suffering. But technically, it's an animal. Hmm. But at the same time, what really drives veganism is... Uh, trying to reduce the suffering and death we cause and only sentient beings can suffer so in that sense um, you know veganism almost uses the term animal as a shortcut for sentience because the point really is about reducing suffering which is only possible in a sentient being so um well that, that's a good so uh, brings up kind of this thing i wanted to ask you about which is sort of um well a couple of things i mean partly just like how you kind of keep going when when it feels like you know I mean, I'm pretty like a pretty, I'd start from a point of pessimism. So I'm just like, I have to almost like, you know, undo that in myself a lot of times with a lot of different yeah. things. But um, yeah, but uh, anyway, well, let's start with that. So like, so, so how, how, how do you kind of keep going if it feels like, yeah, go do you ahead. Mind if I, do you mind if I come back to that in a minute? Because there's one other thought I wanted to oh, yeah, yeah. drill into from the previous topic. Um, and I think it's important because, again, it's a really interesting analog with some problems in human ethics, too. And um, I talked about, uh, you know, I'm pretty confident you're sentient because, in a way, you're like me. Right? So I'm I know I'm sentient. That's like Descartes said, although right. he went the wrong route with animals, like torturing his wife's dog while it was still alive, for example, for fun. Um, I didn't but, know that. But okay. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, he, he, he essentially um, declared unilaterally that non-human animals basically were not able to experience suffering or pain at all and their responses were purely mechanistic um so yeah he conducted live vivisections including on his wife's dog apparently and anyway so let's put that to one side but his you know i think therefore i am is a sort of analog to my starting point in that you know i'm certainly feel like i'm experiencing stuff now so that seems like a good starting point to think about your sentience or the sentience of others um and in a way that's unavoidable, right? It's a solid starting point that we can work from. But there is a danger that we follow that path to say, we judge others based on how like me they are. Right. So that's clearly a problem in human ethics, right? We know where that leads, right? Um, to all sorts of polarization and, you know, in-group, out-group challenges, right? People like me are worth more than people who are not like me. You know, that's a clearly problematic thing to say in human ethics. And I think we need to be a little bit careful in non-humans too because the reason you know a chicken or a fish um has moral value in my view is not to the degree they are like a human 
it's because of their own perspective and maybe the richness and salience thereof. And we can't know that. We can infer it probabilistically and provisionally and try and you know, always get a little bit less wrong about what that might be like. But it's, there's a subtle difference there between recognising the perspective of the other for its own self and thinking it has value because of how like or dislike it is from me. And I think that's another parallel that causes problems in human ethics, obviously. We've got to be a little bit careful of that in non-human animals as well. Well, I also see a lot of like on Instagram sort of like um, with among sort of animal rights activists to try to make the animal like a human and therefore yeah. make you feel that connection, which I mean, I'm not saying, I don't know, like it's complicated, but but I actually, I, there was something that was like, keeps popping up. It's like, you know, this cow is sobbing on its way to slaughter. And in my head, I immediately like, was it sobbing? Like what? But it's like, ultimately that doesn't matter whether the cow was literally, you know, like being like a human, that shouldn't be the reason. I mean, I don't know. It's, like, the, exper it's the experience of the cow that matters. And right. we, can only, we can only assess that indirectly, including through analogs to what we feel. So, you know, in a way it's unavoidable, but I agree right. there is, right. there is a subtle difference there. That, um, and that I, I guess just pop covering, you know, the ag industry, that is kind of a big complaint from farmers of like, you know, that doesn't happen, basically, that doesn't happen like that, or this is this outlying incident. And, um, you know, there, maybe it doesn't, maybe it isn't, sometimes, sometimes maybe it is an outlying incident, you know, and, and, but I think it's sort of like, whether it is or it isn't really isn't the point, like how often this worst case scenario of slaughter happens, isn't really the point yeah I, I, you know there's all these even if you do it the best way there's all these impacts that we have i totally agree and again from the perspective of the individual that's going through that process even the least bad slaughter is an awful awful thing um you know again as it would be if uh, we envisaged that happening to a companion animal or another human you know we would not use the word humane in any other situation to apply to that being done um and again i think you know there's a scale of worse and less worse, of course, um, and where exactly you are on that spectrum, you know, is open to debate. Um, but um, I think it's instructive that most animal farmers, I think, do feel some sense of connection to some degree with their animals. They're not just dollar signs, but most of them outsource the slaughter. Now, that's yep. partly a, you know, an economic thing and a centralization thing and a process efficiency thing. But I think it's also because they don't want to see that, right? No, they I, don't. I mean, that they. I have talked to many farmers who say totally that, and they they do love their animals. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, if you and that's really where that's those are hard conversations because it's one thing to talk to someone. I think about what they choose at the store. Like, that's not their their lives and the tradition of like what how yeah. their parents farmed. That's, I mean, a pretty big thing to take on really if you're saying like you know if it's like the, the way my farmers I'm sorry the way my father raised him and the, his father before that and all this stuff like you've got this whole huge family tradition of stewarding the land and taking care of the animals and then and then eating those animals and selling those animals to support the family like that's their whole lives so that part's hard um and there's, and there's a really interesting analog there as well because in the current zeitgeist there's a lot of, I guess, empathy and understanding, particularly for indigenous cultures and populations mm -hmm. because of their traditions and the way they've lived with stewardship on the land. And that has included and continues to include, you know, harming and killing other sentient beings as well. Um, and there's a, there's a, you know, uh, a, a, an understandable um, context setting for that tradition and the meaning for that culture that makes people hesitant to challenge what's going on within them. Um, but I think, you know, that's basically the same story you hear from a rancher in the Midwest of the US, right? We've been doing this for generations. We're stewarding the land. We look after our uh, animals. We're feeding the country. This is my livelihood. This is my family's meaning and purpose. Um, you know, this is our life. It's, it's yeah. hard. It's hard. Yes. I mean, the one kind of in a weird, in a, in a weird way, it's also not easier, but farmers are also... 
like they know how the process works. You actually, in some ways, you can you can have those conversations in some way more easily than someone who's like in the middle of eating a burger and like, oh, I don't want to talk about this right now. Like you're grossing yeah. me out. Whereas yeah. a farmer is not going to say that to you. So, yeah. you know, I mean, they're, they're having those conversations and they're a lot of, you know, people are a lot of, you know, really, there are some really good ranchers who are like really engaging with vegan. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, one of my favorite people, Megan Brown, like just, she will pop up and say, I've dated vegans. So, um, you know, and, and kind of push back against her fellow ranchers in the sense that like, because of some of the sort of, you know, animal adv- advocacy sort of tropes, I guess that tr- get trotted out. Yeah. So in a way, like I'd rather talk to her about these things than, um, you know, than, than someone who's has no idea really how their food is made. Um, so that's kind of an, I don't know, an interesting wrinkle. I also think yeah. one thing I've kind of learned um, as a new baby vegan is that, um, turns out it's not just, you know, white vegans, like there are other vegans, <laughs> there, are black oh, yeah. vegans there are indigenous vegans. So it's like, you know, because that's kind of, I think a trip that I bought into, like, I can't sort of be preaching veganism because it's just white people putting it on other cultures. Um, and, yeah. So part of it is navigating. It's, I guess, it's almost. Like, I think it's it's almost completely the other way around. Right. Totally. Uh, it's it's um. You know, if you look at the, that's one of the been one of the fascinating things is I've been looking into the philosophy of this the sentientism idea is both when you look at naturalistic thinking you know non religious worldviews they predate predate any religion but when you look at the sentiocentric compassion for non human animals that goes back thousands of years too in many different cultures so you look at you know the ahimsa, ahimsa concept that flows through Buddhism and Hinduism and yeah. Jainism is a great example. Um, you look at other non-religious worldviews. You know, these are ancient ideas that have been around for a long time. And I'd argue that if you want to find the example of the most colonially oppressive, you know, if you like, white imposition on others, right up towards the top of that list has to be industrial animal agriculture. So if anything, it's it's you know, it's the it's the other way around. Um, and I think you're right. You know, there you know. Uh, uh, people from all sorts of different cultures and backgrounds and uh, who are driving this agenda at a faster rate than the average boring middle-class white vegan London me. So. Yeah. And so like some of that, I think is having broader conversations, but, you know, I mean, I guess, and not that I'm out, I mean, I probably the opposite in preaching veganism since my one <laughs> of my family's vegan, but like, I don't know. And I just, these just is a reminder, I guess, to like that. The, I think of the power of like community basically um, and having a diverse community really, but like having different conversations, having, you know, inclusive conversations um, instead of thinking like, this is a thing that I'm going to tell everyone to do. Um, yeah. So I don't know. And, and, I, and I think a, crit- a critical part of, uh, you know, this idea of sentientism is that, um, you know, human beings are sentient too, even the people that disagree with us on Twitter, right? So, so if we're going to really have a universal compassion for ourselves, for non-human animals, and for humans, that includes the humans who we disagree with, and it includes the humans who, um, you know, would be impacted by the conclusions of our ethical deliberation. So we need to think about yeah. you know, all sorts of different diverse communities and families and, and, and the people as impacted by these things. And even the people who, you know, get taste pleasure or cultural pleasure from participating in these products that you know we are in a sense proposing to do some I would argue minimal but some form of harm to them and that, that leads you know a phrase I quite like is this idea of a just transition where we're not just saying you know this is an evil thing it has to stop that's it it's it's this is an awful thing it has to stop and how can we transition in a way that is compassionate for all of the people and sentient beings involved and I think that's really important work that um i think the movement as a whole needs to focus much more on now you know in a sense it feels to a degree like we've almost won the moral argument already there isn't really much more to go over there it's sort of obvious in a way um but it but what we need to do is work out how to do that and right. um you know we've, and we've got some terrible examples of you know if you like other industries and other practices in the past where um you know, governments, for example, have just taken a very blunt approach and not supported those communities through the transition at all. Um, you know, in the UK, for example, the, the steel industry might be one example mm. of coal mining, where, you know, it was almost like t- taps are turned off, 
shut down good luck you know go on a training course and work out what your new life is going to be and um that was pretty much it right we can't take that approach we have to find some way that recognizes the communities and the and the people all around the world not just in industrial animal agriculture but ultimately in um you know local food production practices but to find some way of helping them get to a less harmful way of living that has compassion for them as well yeah and i think i mean that's the that is an aspect i'm really interested in because that is incredibly challenging just looking in the u.s in terms of how there's so many different types of farms just in the u.s so like what and i mean there's so much to it like you know and obviously we grow so much corn um like we cannot just change that overnight of course um and so like that is an argument that drives me nuts like okay so if everyone would vegan tomorrow it would be a disaster and it's like well of course because that would be like just you know, immediately shutting off this huge system without any kind of, you know, foresight yeah. or, or, or transition away from it. Like, of course that would be a disaster, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it or that there wouldn't be all these like long-term benefits. We have to look at how, but there is a lot of interesting to me wrinkles. It's a lot, it's, it's, you know, a lot of uh, wonky ag stuff of like, where does the pea protein get grown and, yeah. you know, imports and, and exports and that stuff's interesting to me. I don't know how interesting it is to everybody else. I think it's fascinating. And this, and this, and we need a lot of different plans as well. There is no one plan. So yes. it might be pea protein. It might be mushrooms. It might be seaweed farming. Yeah. It might be, but, but a lot of it won't be about food agriculture at all, because I think this is one of the things that people still don't really understand about animal agriculture is how deeply inefficient it is um, because of feed conversion ratios and so on you know so our world in data has done some great analysis that again in this thought experiment where everyone switches to plant-based foods we could free up three quarters of the world's agricultural land because we, yeah. we just wouldn't need it to sustain the existing population so again it's naive to say you know well if you're a beef rancher just start growing pea protein because there'll be quite a few of those beef ranches that, you know, we'll only eat so much pea protein, right? The, once we've got rid of the inefficiency of animal agriculture, we'll need a lot less. So what else, What are the other parts? Are there things about environmental, um, you know, reconstruction? Are there things about uh, renewable energy and using that land for solar or wind? Or, you know, there's so many other things, but it's not just about agriculture. Because in short, if we switch from animals to plants, we'll need a lot less agriculture in total, even with a growing population. Yes, but it's something that would take decades. I mean, because oh, yeah, I yeah. think, I feel yeah. like from the studies I looked at, which were even there, like so, everything was so pre was preliminary because obviously no one's really doing this right now. Yeah. But ranchers would sort of be like, like ranchers are not in danger of going anywhere tomorrow. Because the first thing would be more like, you know, uh, the mass amount of like chickens and hogs, like, because, you know, it, something at that scale kind of trying to transition. Um, in fact, see, it's such a like weird, it's so many different factors, it's kind of hard to tease out. But basically, the, the animal, the livestock farmers that are most interested in transitioning are like the independent, not independent, but the contract chicken farmers who yeah. are like enough, like I, I'm not getting paid enough. This is awful. I'm sick of That's it. awful, yeah. Yeah, and they are more- Tied into a contract, like, yeah. Yeah, and they, and they are trying to look for other ways to make money basically. But so it's something like that where maybe you could, but it's even that's been- tough so far but it's you know not been very long but to try to figure out like okay what i have this giant steel structure that i was housing chickens in could i grow mushrooms could i grow hemp but it's not easy at all like because it's not that i know i've not tried to grow mushrooms but it's a little more complicated than just like throwing them in this you know structure so and it's and the main thing is the markets i think you know there's this easy market for the chicken because for, for the chickens because they had a contract with a big company like Pilgrim's Pride or something like that or Tyson's. So it's like that's all set up for you. Even if you're losing, you're losing money each year, you at least don't have to sort of figure out a whole new market for whatever you're growing. Yeah. Um, so figuring out and, that new market is complicated. And leaving it to farmers and you know NGOs and charities like Mercy for Animals to work that out is um 
it's better than nothing, but it's crazy, right? To my mind, you know, yeah. this is what enlightened government should be doing is, is saying, you know, we need to invest, instead of propping these industries up uh, through massive subsidies, we need to be diverting those subsidies progressively towards investing and helping them find these new paths. Um, again, whether it's environmental subsidies or new product lines or you know, whatever it is, right? That's, we should be, again, that's another mistake that um, governments have made many times before with other industries that have come to the end of their natural life is propping them up. You know, one is just cut them dead and screw the people. And the other is keep propping them up for decades, even while they continue to cause damage. And, you know, investing in that transition and driving that has got to be an important role for government to play too. Well, I guess so. That's that's the question I want to talk about is like how, because that's, that's an area of like frustration for me where it's like, there's not even a lot to really report on in the policies. I mean, and it's, and as I say, there's not a lot to report on. It's not entirely true because there's more funding going into all proteins and stuff like that. There is a little bit. Yeah. But it's when millions you start, as opposed to billions, but it's something. Yeah. Yeah. But also when you look, I mean, I don't think anyone's working on transition really. I, well, I, yeah. in a, I mean, I think Cory Booker has put out some stuff, so it's not like no yeah. one but he doesn't have any other support. <laughs> um, yeah. And and I mean, kind of like this New York, I don't know if you saw this New York Times uh, opinion video that everyone's now trashing on Twitter. Um, not everyone, but some people are trashing it because it is quite heavy handed. However, I feel like, okay, yes, it's heavy handed. However, there's some, you know, legitimate researchers who are being interviewed in this and it's not like, yes, there's gnashing meat happening and the voiceover is like kind of, terrible, like fair, but I don't think that means the whole thing should be dismissed. This is like what drives me nuts about ag conversations. It's like all or nothing. Like, oh, we're not gonna have cultured meat tomorrow. So therefore screw cultured meat. Like what a stupid industry, you know? And it's like, but wait, like (laughs) there's plenty of valid criticisms, but also it's super cool that we can like grow meat and cells. And even if, yes, of course it's capitalist. And also, yes, there's investors who just want to make money. And like, I totally think we should talk about these criticisms, like at all the hype and all of the bad stuff. But can we also talk about a few of the good things? Like, can we just have a nuanced conversation? Those are the yeah. times when I'm like, I got to log off Twitter. It's been too much. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And that, and that sort of the perfect being the enemy of the good is, you know, yes. pops up all over the place. It's awful. It's, you know, you're either insisting that non-human animals are equal to humans or they don't count at all you're 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 talking about a perfect vegan world tomorrow or nothing you're talking about you know why is the impossible burger not the most healthy burger on you know on the planet why couldn't you just just live on those and be healthy it's like what (laughs) there is a nuanced way through these conversations that is again grounded in evidence and reason and you know trying to find a way through it's deeply frustrating but again because there's so much um you know emotion cultural resonance tied up in these things and as with most of these things right massive vested interests um and very intelligent marketing and pr and lobbying and some warped science and um you know it's quite instructive i think to look back at or even the current performance of the tobacco industry and big oil and unfortunately bigger animal agriculture is you know using the same playbook and often the same lawyers and the same lobbyists and the same pr firms so um so, yeah, I think you can say that about big plant too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they are. But it's pretty clear where the, you know, where the marketing dollars and the power and the influence lie. So as you say, when you look at, you know, where policy sits today, it's pretty, pretty clear who's winning. Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, I feel like the, and I, I guess it's in some, in some ways, it's just like people have their own personal stories of, not even necessarily of what they think about animals and food, but just like their own experiences in food advocacy that have shaped them. Mm-hmm. And, and I do too, I absolutely do. But so it's like, I think in for people to re- like interrogate that and reflect on that is not always happening. <laughs> I would like to see more of that. Like, yeah, agree. I feel like I will put out, I, I mean, you know, maybe I'm just like being a wham baby right now. Cause, but I feel like I'm like, I am trying to do that now your turn. Like, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> we're not perfect. I've been, yeah. I have not like, I was not, you know, born a vegan. Like I've not been a vegan for, for, you know, more than a year. Like I've changed my mind on things. I've been wrong about things. I've reported on things incorrectly. Like we, we make mistakes, you know, and I 
think all we can do, we have to be able to acknowledge those things or we can't have like real conversations, you know? Com completely agree. And, and, and there's a character, you know, there's a caricature of veganism that we're pretending we've achieved some state of moral and ethical purity, right? That's just bullshit. There is, there's yeah. no such thing as, you know, an agriculture system, a food system, a consumption system that doesn't cause some sort of harm, you know, plant agriculture, harms yeah. and kills sentient beings too, and it has environmental challenges. Um, so it's not about, you know, we're in the perfect camp and everyone else is evil. It's all about nuance, right? And there's no, there's no perfection to attain. Um, and, but that shouldn't get in the way of us just try, trying to do a bit better. <laughs> right. Which I think is kind of the idea of optimism. Like when you look at sort of the, the psychology of optimism, it's... Yeah. This is a big thing that I, I think I'm going to write a, a newsletter on. It's just like, it's not actually like, everything's great. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't think about those bad things. It's just like, what are the one or two things that are, that are, go, that are going right? And can you do more of that? You know, can yeah. you take a couple steps? Like, what are the couple things you can do? But like, yeah, maybe, I don't know what it is in our culture, cultures, like, or, or just maybe being, I don't know what it is, social media, something, but that everything tends to sometimes become very black and white and extreme. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And you, I mean, you mentioned that optimism, one of my previous guests said, you know, in a way it doesn't really matter whether you're pessimistic or optimistic, as long as you keep yeah. working. Right. So, so if you're too, you don't bother. If you're too pessimistic, you get fatalistic um, and, you know, move into denialism, right. You, almost whatever, as long as you can just try and make some positive improvements and appreciate those for what they are and, you know, be humble about the influence we're able to have in this big complex world. Then, you know, that that's the balancing point, I guess. Yeah. That was a huge turning point for me in my life is figuring out, um, it's just like learning a little bit more about optimism research and realizing like, I don't have to, you know, be like, and opt whatever this like vision of optimist optimist that I had, like, I don't have to be yeah. that um, just to sort of like basically be sort of healthy, emotionally healthy and do good work. Like I, I don't have yeah. to actually be the sort of like, you know, uh, bright sider, as they say, like, I don't have to do that and be this like toxic, you know, toxic positivity person. But um, yeah. yeah, I think that, that can almost, that can almost end up putting more pressure on yourself because you feel like you're you know if you're yeah. not living up to that standard you're you're letting yourself down it's crazy we need to start with compassion for ourselves before we can help others yes. too but i do find i do find that there's i think there's some you know genuine rationale behind some sense of optimism in these spaces as well and they come to they come back to probably um three things for me one is that i think human ethics have some have the latent goodness in them in this space mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's good and bad in human evolved eth ethics, of course. Um, but um, you know, most people intuitively, if you ask them in a neutral context, don't want to cause suffering to other humans or to non-humans either. I mean, they don't, right? And when you, whether you talk to them about companion animals, whether you, whether you think about, you know, the natural compassion most children feel for non-human animals before we talk, you know, a different way of life. Um, uh, and also when you look at, some interesting survey work. So Sentience Institute has done some fascinating surveys. They repeat every couple of years, I think, across the US. And you ask people opinions about animal farming. You're not asking about their decisions or their purchases, but you're saying, you know, what do you think? The, number, the percentages of people who will say factory farming is a bad thing, or even slaughterhouses should be banned, which I think in the last survey was 45% of people said slaughterhouses should be banned. When you ask those questions in a neutral context, you get this sense that you, there's this latent ethic that sort of already agrees with where we are. So it is more a question of social norms and practices and opportunity to move forward. So that gives me some optimism. The second thing is, um, and again, I think we can learn this from other social, human social justice movements, is if you can make it easy to do the right thing, it, it helps. So again, whether it's alternative proteins, whether it's availability of plant foods, um, whether it's just the increasing social acceptability of veganism, you know, it feels to me in the UK and the US that veganism is now where vegetarianism was maybe 15, 20 years ago. And it's, you know, people know what the word means. It's still a vilified term to some, but it's more accepted. It's more part of the zeitgeist. Firms are shifting. Um, and in some other places around the world, it's been part of their culture for 
thousands of years. So there's so there's that social. So if we can make it easier for people to do the right thing, I think change can happen fast. And I think the other thing is that just our potential as a human species to make change really quickly on ethical issues. So you know, it always feels too painful when you're driving for a new social change. Um, and the people on the other side are always worried you're going too fast and they want to conserve and slow down and keep things the way they are. But when you look back on it historically, it's amazing how quickly things can change. And you don't need 70, 80, 90% of people to agree with you. You just need you know, 10, 15%, some shifts, make it easier, policy changes, social norms change, and, and things can really turn around quite rapidly. So I, those are the three things that I come back to, I guess, for my sources of guarded optimism. Um, That's very helpful. Yeah. And I think actually this idea of shifts has been, it, it's a small, it's small by definition, but and it has actually been, been very big for me to kind of think about like these little incremental changes, both in people's attitudes and how we eat that yeah. I think can be so huge. So I think that's, yeah. And the, the other thing, there's a, there is a challenge. And again, this is, doesn't just apply to this space where people feel that they individually are insignificant. So it's a question mm -hmm. of, you know, what, what difference does it make, right? If I have a impossible burger or a, or a Big Mac, right? What, what yeah. difference does it make? I'm, one, I'm a tiny part of a massive complex system. There are 7.8 billion humans. Does it really matter? And people feel like that in, you know, democracy as well. What's the point of my vote, me voting? Is it really going to make a difference? Um, so, um that that's also a challenge and a pushback. And I think it's really important to recognize the systemic changes we need here and not to overemphasize, you know, individual choices. But what I would say is that if you're thinking in percentage terms and the whole world and the whole problem and thinking you individually are going to fix it, then yes, you're going to be disappointed. But that doesn't mean the individual change you make doesn't have some impact and that that impact isn't through a chain deeply important to a real sentient being at the other end right even if it's just one or two or five or ten or two hundred that still makes a difference and yeah. and i think there's also a role and we touched on this in our conversation um that you know those systems are deeply important and powerful and sluggish to change but they largely comprise individual people and and each of us has a role you know people talk a lot about consumption in veganism because it's sort of one way we can apply some sort of positive pressure, hopefully, but it's, it's it's not just about that. You know, it's about voting. It's about standing for office. It's about the roles we play. If we work for a company, if we're a stakeholder, a shareholder, a manager, an employee, um, you know, council member, um, a letter writer, a campaigner, a petitioner. You know, those systems um, comprise individuals, and we can, you know, depending on our capabilities and the time and our resources and our privileges, you know, we can we can pull lots of levers at once. And even just making a very small personal change, the ripples from that flow out through. You know, every conversation you have, every article you write, you know, I think sometimes we underestimate that potential for change. And that's partly why social change can happen quicker than we might expect. Yeah. And I think finding the, seeing the connections between an individual action and kind of systemic change is, is important. Um, it's not something you're going to see overnight, but like you can, I, but I, I think sort of Go, it's another like going beyond kind of a black and white thinking of like this one thing yeah. Yeah. the effect is right there well no it's like this this subtle thing affects something else and and could have another impact later you know measuring that can be hard but I think once we sort of realize there's these bigger impacts to be had they just might not have it overnight it's, it's it is positive <laughs> yeah and hopefully yeah. It gives us some reason for optimism yeah every little helps Yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today. I'm going to hit stop on the recording. This has been, it's been a pleasure. Great. My, my inaugural recording. Here we go. <laughs>